Welcome back to the program. Jane Jacobs, writing in The Life and Death of American Cities, asks an important question. People living in vigorous culture, she wonders, typically treasure those cultures and resist any threat to them. So how and why can people so totally discard a formerly vital culture so that it becomes virtually lost? The city of Detroit was such a culture, once the heartland and bulwark of industrial America, now it sits as an urban corpse. What does it say about America, about Detroit, and more importantly, about the people who built it and then watched it crumble? Few understand Detroit better than my guest, Charlie LaDuff. He's a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist. He was with the New York Times and the Detroit News and is currently a television reporter for Detroit's Fox 2. It is my pleasure to welcome Charlie LaDuff to this program to talk about Detroit, an American autopsy. Charlie, thanks so much for joining us. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Great to have you here. Before you move back to Detroit, where you're from, and we'll talk about that, you lived in L.A. for a while. Talk a little bit about that distinction, moving from what a lot of people look at as a city of the future to Detroit, which clearly is a city of the past. Yeah, L.A., the city of the future? I don't know. I mean, it's the city of the moment, but uh, I look at L.A., I look at uh, Oakland, I look at St. Louis, Atlanta, Philadelphia, Baltimore. I look across the great country, the industrial north, and uh, I see Detroit as normal, as also the city of the moment. I mean, uh, what are we to do? It, it, the industrial heartland, if the value of the dollar was made here, and in these cities I mentioned, and they're not made there anymore, well, what does that say about our future? Now, L.A. was nice to be there. It really was, but uh, I had a child. I want to raise my child where I'm from, which is Detroit. But L.A. has very many of the same problems financially, if you look underneath everything, mm-hmm. as Detroit has. Pension liabilities, uh, tax imbalance, uh, increasing uh, poverty amongst, amongst you know, the, the majority of the population, falling wages. I don't know where it is we're going. And so I think... There's a lot of similarity. Detroit, I know, seems exotic. One of the things you say about Detroit is that in addition to being awful in the state that it's in today, that it wasn't that great in the first place. Is that, do we have this tendency to over-romanticize those cities that that we look back on even in their heyday? It seems to me. Uh, I can only go from my, uh, you know, my personal perspective, but uh, as, you know, I... I start to look into because they don't really teach you much about where you grow up, you know. And um, yeah, the eighties it was collapsing, the industrial base was starting to slip. And then I come home in the two thousands and I start looking back at it. And my mom, who told me about, you know, the, you know, the ice cream parlors and the cruising Woodward on Saturday night, and then you realize, hey, wait a minute, blacks were and Jews were legally barred from particular neighborhoods here in the north legally until the fifties. That uh, unemployment in 1958 was 20%. Um, the fact that downtown Detroit was emptying out in the 60s. And I say, hey, Ma, it's not what you told me. She goes, I don't know. That's what they told me. So you, 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 you t- I certainly learned about uh, you know, the, the human mind when you kind of stylize your past, which makes it easier to go on with the future. So um, from Buffalo... Are you from Pittsburgh or Cleveland or 
St. Louis or wherever, you're talking about how great things were. I mean, look again. Look deep. Look deep. Can't know where you're going if you don't know where you're from. And talk about that, this sense of the history literally disappearing and a whole generation looking back to Detroit or their parents might have been from Detroit or their grandparents, their ancestry in some way. And it's very difficult to get in touch with that history because in some respects it's disappeared. Yeah, I mean, again, everybody think, wants things to be lollipops and unicorns, you know, but think of it. Detroit's really fascinating. We had the Purple Gang in the, in the 20s and 30s during Prohibition, right? An all-Jewish mob that was running liquor for Al Capone from Canada, which is right across the river from Detroit. So 50,000 jobs in Detroit during Prohibition was related to illicit alcohol. That's interesting. Our... Our mayors, we've, we've had one, two, three, four mayors go to prison in Detroit in the last 80 years. So it wasn't just Kwame Kilpatrick, the latest guy. This is a culture here. You know, the, oh, what was going on here in Detroit, uh, you know, with the war effort and price gouging and, uh, and all of this stuff. This is like fascinating stuff, uh, the, 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 the racial component. This is all fascinating stuff that we're not taught, that would really go a long way into repairing ourselves and healing some wounds that we just don't touch. Talk about that, the ways in which it might go a long way, as you say, in beginning to heal those wounds and understanding one of the things about Detroit you talk about is that essentially it was always a kind of southern city. Yes, it, uh, you know, when Henry Ford uh, really gets his assembly line rolling and General Motors follows suit, packets through to Baker, et cetera, et cetera, you get a lot of uh, excess labor up here from the South, uneducated labor, black and white, and then you get them from Europe, Poland, et cetera. And it's a real witch's brew of, of, of race, real stew. And in the 50s and the 60s, as the, as the Southerners are getting their comeuppance and they have to face their, their legacy and their, and their, and their presence. We never did it here in Detroit. We're supposedly the determinants of the underground railroad, but it was very Southern. Uh, blacks were all but barred from moving into particular neighborhoods. And so when they ran a freeway down the black quarter, but wouldn't let people move out, well, you can understand what the housing did. Uh, uh, in one particular year in the 50s, there were 250 rat bites in the, in the black quarter alone. So eventually, by the time 67 comes along and a couple of guys come back from Vietnam and they're having a party after hours, and the, the police, which at that point are about 95% white, start busting some heads, well, predictably, the town's going to explode, but that's not what white people are taught. They're really, it's, quite frankly, they're taught... For some unknown reason, black people went crazy and burned down the greatest city in America. Well, if you really look at the history, what do you think was going to happen? And these are the kind of things that we need to, to, to talk about in order to move forward and create a better society. Whether you're liberal or conservative, whatever it is, let's acknowledge where we're from so the kids and the grandkids have a shot at something. Because as it stands now, we're not leaving them much. I guess the broader question, though, is who's left to teach it to, given how the city 
has hollowed out. I mean, at one point in the 80s, they were, what, almost one and a half million people in the city. I don't know what the population is now, but it's certainly substantially less. Well, it's half that, but, you know, the, the region is still like, uh, uh, you know, metropolitan region is the top 10 in the United States. So we're still here, you know, and uh, L.A. has this, this issue. And, uh, you know, uh, the East Coast, Newark, has this issue. This isn't settled. I mean, this is just one piece of the American experience, but uh, it's really worth addressing. And then when we talk about um, the future of America and, and work and wages, well, we're, we're going to need to acknowledge what's been going on in terms of uh, trade clauses and, and banking deregulation. And instead of just blaming workers for being lazy and, and slothful or management being incompetent, uh, you know, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a wider mosaic than the current discussion on cable TV, isn't it? The liberals blame the conservatives, the conservatives blame the liberals, we talk about values, and, you know, there's the great middle, it's all sitting there going, wait a minute, wait a minute, none of this makes any sense. Is any of this conversation going on anywhere in Detroit today? Sure. It's going out a lot of places because, uh, as we were just saying, if it was 1.5 million, Detroit's now under 700,000. Well, as my mom said, she goes, maybe your generation is better because when uh, whites left, right, uh, like, you know, uh, we're getting out of the city. Okay, well, then the city becomes, you know, almost unlivable and the black middle class moves into the, the, the new white places and nobody's moving away. You know what I mean? We're going to make this thing work. We're going to have to make this thing work. There's no, there's no money to run away. And quite frankly, I think culturally, the country has improved. We're not anywhere where we need to be, but, you know, let's give ourselves some credit. It's a pretty decent experiment on planet Earth. So we are having the discussions. We are making it work. And there's a whole lot of, whole lot of stuff to do to, to dig ourselves out of the mess we made. How important or how relevant is any of the political class within a city like Detroit? How relevant is that to digging out of this, to the kind of things you're talking about, to people realizing they're stuck there and they have to make it work? Well, the same as everywhere else. We're going to need the political class, but they're not very good and we don't trust them. And they seem to be beholden to big money. And so, you know, I'm, I'm here holding my breath, waiting to see, trying to keep them honest you know, but um, we we tend to think that our we're going to hitch our wagons to a couple of billionaires. Well, we know billionaires are um, are businessmen, and they operate under self-interest. So, what's good for them may trickle down. It may not, but we're going to have to demand more than a bunch of goofballs, you know, feeding at the trough, because. The saying is, if you even look at Washington, there's no Democrat, there's no Republican. They're just millionaires. Well, they're not doing the people's work. You know what I mean? There's a lot of, lot of they, they tell me the economy's improving, but I don't, I don't see the underpinnings. I see a bunch of uh, air being blown in the economy by the Fed, but I, I, don't, I don't see how we're making middle-class lives, really owning our homes, preparing uh, a nest egg for our kids to go to college. I, th- I think this is an epic and not a cycle. What about grassroots efforts in Detroit now? What's there? What's going there's on? A, there's a lot of them. There's a lot of them, and that's a good thing. 
You know, you like people to be involved, but uh, urban farming is not going to get this done. You know, creating art out of found objects is not going to get this done. This is, like I said, this is global. This is massive. We're talking about hundreds of thousands of people under underemployed. See, one of the things I say is like, urban farming is going to be great. Well, let, let's do the math. If we have three... To, uh, a low ball, like 250,000 uh, under or unemployed adults in Detroit, okay? And we're going to urban farm. Well, let's look at California, the breadbasket. We have 400,000 farm workers, okay? It's, it's close. We can make that comparison. You're not allowed, or it's, it's federal law where a farm worker doesn't get paid overtime. The average wage is about 10 bucks an hour. You're telling me, that a northern person and an American is going to work for $10 an hour. I hate to say it, but are they really with no overtime? And the city, of course, you know what the soil is like. There's leads and selenium and this kind of stuff. And it's nowhere near the scope and length of the San Joaquin Valley. So this is not the solution. It's a cool thing. I love the garden, too. I have tomatoes. But that's not what we're talking about. Grassroots is great, but we need a political structure and an economic structure to handle this really, really big, intractable problem. Does it have to be, though, an attitude? I mean, certainly urban farming is not going to solve the unemployment problem in any way, shape, or form. But these no. small efforts like that, even if it employ, even if it, it it only employs a few people, do these small efforts in showing that people care act like you know the conversation that used to go on in New York about getting rid of the squeegee guys? Does it begin the the broken window theory? Does it just begin to change the underlying culture in ways that make the big things more possible? One hopes. And uh, certainly, uh, you want to believe it, and it it can't do harm. So, yes, agreed. Agreed. Now, it's not just Detroit, remember, because the suburbs are industrial suburbs. So, you talk about 700,000 people, but this book I wrote, it really has to do with the region. There's a Warren. Warren is the home of the Reagan Democrats, right? Why Why would the white working class vote for a Republican? Why would he vote against his economic... Uh, interest. You have Roseville, you have Westland, you have all the, you know, these, these other places. Detroit is not disconnected from the United States. And then you can blow it out from there to Cleveland and Pittsburgh. And, and yeah, there needs to be, as you said, some kind of, uh, again, I'm not a liberal, I'm not a conservative, but there needs to be an awakening, a consciousness about, about what is and, and what we do and what we hold dear. And so let me, let me sound like a conservative. We do need family values. We do need to take care of our own. We do need to save money. We do need to try to work hard. We, we, we can't count on the government. They've showed us that. You know what I mean? We're going to have to go back to some things. And you can dump all the money you want in the school systems. You can dump them into, to, 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 uh, I used to be a school teacher. You can dump them into federal programs. But until the parent decides they want to sit down with their child and encourage them over that homework, then the, the kid doesn't have a future. And I don't know how you encodify that. So maybe you're right. It's about this grassroots thing, about caring about your kids, about being involved in your school. That's, 
I think the best and only way to start the, the comeback. What about these small pockets of gentrification that have sprung up in Detroit? What's that all about, and is it meaningful in any way? Uh, yeah, of course. I mean, you need a, a vibrant city implies sort of a cosmopolitan vibe to it. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So you're going to need you're going to need some immigrants. You're going to need some hipsters. You're going to need some professionals, right? To, to like New York is really interesting. We have something called Michelama, which is when when it's when it's public housing, it's it's eighty twenty, eighty percent upper and middle class and twenty percent poor. That way, you don't create sores and pockets of, of just abject poverty. You 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 mix the boat. And it and it and you can look at New York. It, it pulls people up. Of course, New York has Wall Street, and that's an artificial sort of representation of how America really works. But it does work there. Talk a little bit about your mother's generation and how she sees what's happened to the city. My mom's true blue. You know, my mom's my mom's my really my hero. She is. You know, single mom raising the kids, bringing the bread, being the guy, being the gal. And my mom says, you know, as you get older, you're a little more conservative. And she says, ah, my generations might be the worst. We might be the worst because what we did was we, we threw away a lot of things and we didn't replace them. So, okay. So the mythology of the president and, and God and, and the father, okay, we feel good. We do it. We did it. Drugs, divorce, dissolution. We didn't replace it with anything. And people are people. They're animals. We're a tribe. Well, you know what I mean? We, we need stories. We need rules. We need ceremony. And if, if we're just laughing at all of it, well, look what you get. You get mayhem. You know what I mean? There needs to be structure. And I don't know about you, but I, I worry that we have a lack of it. And that's what I get from my mom. And I really trust my mom. You know what I mean? I make sure I sit at her table and talk to her about things. And that's why I moved home because I, I really need my daughter to be up to, to be sitting at that table with me so she can remember some of these things. So, you know, the world is, is, is becoming closer and closer and now it is more important than ever. I think, and it's just me. I think you need to be from somewhere when, when everybody's sort of mixed. Where are you from? You know, what do you believe in? Who are you? You don't need to be a fascist or, uh, you know, a hater, but you really need it. You need a root. Otherwise, we have a saying in my family, a tree without roots is simply wood. And that's ultimately why I quit the West Coast and decided to come back to the Midwest. I need that for my daughter. What then is the responsibility? And if not a responsibility, what would be the goal of getting the older generation, your mom's generation, the role they can play in beginning to change attitudes and revitalize the city as it is today? In providing and helping them provide the historical context that, as you talk about, is so important. How about we just value them? How about we just seek them out? It's pretty simple, you know what I mean? Like we, be, being old <laughs> is not a disease. You know, it's a blessing. And uh, um, 
you know, maybe something good's coming out of all of this, which is uh, because of the wealth and the selfishness, like we don't simply, we don't have the economic ability to toss our old people into old folks' homes. They now, they now have to live with us and grow old and, and die in our bedrooms. And maybe in that way, you know, we reconnect with ourselves. You know, maybe we don't have our faces stuffed in telephones and, and, and cable television and, and porno and everything and, you know, video games. Maybe, maybe we are for everything that, 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 that goes wrong. Something, something good grows out of it. That's the human experience. So I'm not really down. I know, I know Detroit will always be here and I'm, I'm really interested to be part of, uh, what, what the new epic's going to be. And that really does include the elders. We're going to need them. So it's not as one of the, the fire officials says in, in the book, a dead city that, that you believe that it still has a spark of life left. Yeah. I mean, there are people here. So, you know, when, you know, I know it says autopsy, but you know, uh, Metro Detroit an American vivisection is hardly a sexy title for a bookstore. <laughs> you know, Charlie LaDuff, the book is Detroit, an American autopsy. It is just out in paperback. We'll take a break. I'll be right back. 